If there was one thing of which you could not accuse Charles Haddon Spurgeon, it would be cowardice. As a man of God, he sought always to be faithful to the Lord Christ as he found him speaking in his word. And that's true in today's sermon, which is number 393 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. It was preached on a Sunday morning, the 19th of May, 1861, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and the title is The Church Conservative and Aggressive. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we're working together through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We are in the seventh volume of the complete series. We've done the six from the new Park Street pulpit. We're in the first of the Met Tab pulpits proper, and we're reading this week sermons 388 to 394. Our sermon that is featured this week, in case you can't read one every day, is 393, The Church Conservative and Aggressive. Now, if you'd like to know more, you'd be very welcome to do so uh, by following us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or by going to mediagratii.org podcasts, finding from the heart of Spurgeon and signing up to a weekly newsletter where we circulate a brief introduction where we uh, provide the text of the week's featured sermon and where you'll find a link to this podcast. And if that would be helpful to you, then by all means uh, sign up or subscribe, please, to the podcast here. Uh, And if you can, leave us a review or uh, rate us. We'd love it if it was a a higher rating, of course, um, so that others can find us as well. Next week, God willing, we'll be looking at Sermon 401 on Jacob's waking exclamation. But now, back to the church, conservative and aggressive, with Spurgeon's text, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And here is Spurgeon's boldness. Now, Last week, we looked at a sermon that he preached for the Baptist Missionary Society, and we need to make sure that we've got that in context as we go into this sermon, because even there, Spurgeon had in mind the responsibility of the church preeminently for the sending out of its missionaries, and that comes really to the fore in this particular sermon. Now, there's a, another smaller context, uh, a more local one. He begins by reminding the congregation that it was announced last Sunday that a collection would be made in behalf of our institution for training young men for the ministry. So this has already begun. Uh, William Medhurst was the first, uh, not William, sorry, Thomas Medhurst. Apologies for my confusion. Thomas William Medhurst is the man's name, so just got to get all that in the right order. So uh, this Thomas Medhurst was the first of those who came to Spurgeon and said, in essence, will you help me to be something of what God has helped you to be? And he says there are now seven who have been settled in ministry, all of whom are eminently successful, probably not who are going to become great or brilliant, but who have been good and useful preachers and who've seen God use them to bring in converts during the years that they've been settled in pastoral ministry, adding a considerable number every year to the churches, not just in provincial towns, but also in villages. 
And now, says Spurgeon, I've got 16 young men wholly to support and maintain. And how many of us who are pastors would be saying, oh, Lord God, grant that that might be my privilege in days to come. He says, in addition to that, there are a considerable number who receive their education in the evening while still remaining in their own callings. What does he mean by that? Well, he says that with an enlarged sphere, we propose to enlarge a scheme to enable the members of this church and congregation who happen to be deficient in the basic rudiments of knowledge, the plain rudiments of knowledge, to get what he calls a common English education. So he's teaching people to read and to write and to count. And then if they display any ability for speaking without giving up their daily avocations, they shall have classes provided for higher branches of instruction. But should they feel that God has called them to the ministry, I am then prepared after the use of my own judgment and the judgment of my friends as to whether they are fit persons to give them two years special tutorship that they may go forth to the work of the cross thoroughly trained so far as we can affect it in so short a time. So he's saying we want to help people just to learn the basics, to read, to write and to count then there may be some who will be equipped to do more than that and will assist them. And if out of that class there are men who are called to the ministry and that becomes clear because of their graces and their gifts, then we'll invest in them also. But he says, I'm not trying to enrich myself, but we do need money for this work. And that's what he's inviting the church to attend to. And therefore, we need to understand that it is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, his first business, before he even comes to his primary uh, handling of the text, is to remind people of what the church is. It is a chosen assembly. It is actually by the natural debasement of the tongue of priests, though, come down to mean a building. By no possible construction can it mean any such thing. This ecclesia originally signified an assembly, not a mob, but an assembly of persons called together on account of their special right to meet for the discussion of certain subjects, a called-out body. And so it is a company of persons called out by the Holy Spirit from among the rest of mankind banded together for the holy purpose of the defence and the propagation of the truth. And if there's two or th uh, three or four, he says, then the all intents and purposes, there is a church. If there are thousands of them, they're no more a church on account of their numbers because a church is simply a company of faithful men. What a beautiful description. A company of persons called out by the Holy Spirit from among the rest of mankind, banded together for the holy purpose of the defence and propagation of God's truth. And, says Spurgeon, we believe that every church member should have equal rights and privileges. There's no power in church officers to execute anything without the full authorization of the members of the church, but... Flip side of that, we believe that the church should choose its pastor and having chosen him, that they should love him and respect him for his work's sake, that with him should be associated the deacons of the church to take the oversight of pecuniary matters, that is to do with the finances of the church, and the elders of the church to assist in all the works of the pastorate in the fear of God being overseers of the flock. 
Now, there's just a brief glimpse into Spurgeon's ecclesiology. Uh, it's reasonably typical of the Baptist churches of his day and of many still. It's fundamentally congregational. It is uh, also recognizes the place and the authority of the uh, appointed officers of the church by the congregation. Uh, in Spurgeon's case, he would see it would seem uh, essentially these uh, three particular offices, the pastor, the deacons with the elders, uh, but the uh, division of labor between uh, pastoral and diaconal labor, the overseeing of the flock and the uh, the oversight of the practical concerns, that's also woven in there to Spurgeon's understanding. So you may or may not agree with it entirely uh, or with all of it or with the emphasis of it, but that's Spurgeon's working definition. Uh, for myself, I'm perfectly happy with his definition of the church. Uh, I might nuance uh, some of what he says about the uh, the further ecclesiology or doctrine of the church, uh, but I'm happy with the main thrust of what he's saying. So, this is our definition of the church. Such a church we believe to be scripturally ordered, and if it abide in the faith rooted and grounded and settled, it may expect the benediction of heaven and so become the pillar and ground of the truth. Well, what does that mean, he says? Well, for Spurgeon, the pillar is that which uh, supports, forms a basement, and it answers to what the apostle means by the ground of the truth. It is the business of the church, of course, to uphold the truth in its deep foundations, to conserve and preserve it intact. Thus it is the ground. It is to lift it up and bear it aloft in beauty and in all its fair proportions. And in this it is the pillar of the truth. So, his contention from the illustration is that the business of the church of God is to maintain to propagate, to spread abroad, to uphold, to spread and to defend the truth as it is in Jesus, wherever that church may be placed. That's his basic contention. Let me give it to you again. It is the business of the church of God to maintain, to propagate, to uphold, to spread, to defend the truth as it is in Jesus, wherever the church may be placed. And with that in mind, he wants to correct certain mistakes, convince judgments of the excellency of God's ordinance, to stir up some reflections upon the subject, and to suggest some ways of making this and every church such a pillar and ground of the truth. So then, with regard to uh, corrections of certain mistakes, the rule is laid down that the church is itself to maintain and to be the guardian of the truth. And he says then with regard to the maintenance and the spread of the truth, we need to avoid certain errors. The first errors are with regard to the maintaining of the truth, which is that the simple possession of a creed or a trust deed will not in and of itself ensure that a church is and remains faithful. He makes reference, for example, to the Westminster Assembly Confession. 
And he says that the ministers may gather and then they say that the creed will be the pillar and ground of the truth. And as long as the name of the Westminster Assembly confession shall be known, the truth will be safe. Or as long as the 39 articles of the Church of England shall stand, that church must be free from error. And I don't think you have to be a Baptist uh, to, to laugh at the idea that simply possessing a creed or confession as Spurgeon himself did with regard to the 1677-1689 Second London Baptist Confession, that the creed in and of itself guarantees the faithfulness of the church as a gathered body. Now, he's not shooting down the use of creeds and confessions and the, the articles, but what he's saying is that in and of themselves, no articles, no creed, no confession necessarily conserves and maintains the truth because people will sign what they do not believe. He says you need men who actually believe those truths. You need a church that is committed to those truths. And he says trust deeds won't do the same either. And again, this may be a, a particularly a British and Baptist notion, but he makes fun of a chapel in Norfolk, which has on the forefront over the door these words printed in stone, for the strict Baptists forever. Nice try, says Spurgeon, but there's no guarantee that weaving some uh, accurate statement, some definite intent with regard to theological orthodoxy into your trust deed, your, your founding statement, that in itself will not guarantee the faithfulness of the church in its generation or over the generations. Because those bonds are easily broken, sadly. And the same, he says, is true with regard to spreading or diffusing the truth. In order to spread the doctrines of the gospel, we have formed societies. And we're wondering why those missionary societies do not have greater success. And the reason is that because there is not a single word in the book of God about anything of the kind. Now, remember, this is the man who has preached in support of a Baptist missionary society. But this is the man who, in that sermon, understood it as the responsibility of the church to appoint its men and to send them out. And he's going to nuance this slightly, but his point is absolutely plain. The church is the only body instituted and described in the word of God for the maintaining and the propagating of the truth. The church of God, says Spurgeon, is pillar and ground of the truth, not a society, and ought never to have delegated to any society whatever a work which it behoved her to have done herself. Instead of sending our subscriptions to associations, we ought to have picked our own men out of our own midst and found the means to send them forth to preach the truth as it is in Jesus ourselves. We've given up the work of the education to colleges and seminaries. The Church of God, not a college, is the pillar and ground of the truth. Every church should itself see to the education of its own young men. And if your instinct is, this is nonsense, how can a church do this? You just need to wait to get to the end of what Spurgeon's got to say. And we need to rush on, otherwise we'll run out of time in getting there. His second point is that the truth is not safe in the hands of ministers alone. Heresy typically begins with the preachers, not with the people. 
There's not a denomination under heaven, he says, which has a sincerer love to all Calvinistic doctrines than our own, yet how many of our ministers there are who, while they do not preach against them, and I hope secretly believe them, are nevertheless silent upon the subject. So don't trust the broken reeds even of your ministers. However honest we may be, says Spurgeon, yet we have not to deal so much with the world and with its cares and troubles as you, and I think your dealing with the world casts you back very often upon the old solid realities because in the hard daily struggle which you have to carry on, you need to have the finest of wheat to sustain your strength. Now, here's the nuance. Do not misunderstand me, says Spurgeon. I would not say a single word against any society for the spread of God's truth, but I repeat yet again, and I must, that all societies of that sort spring from an irregular and unscriptural position of the church. For the church, if she were in her right state, would do the whole of the work herself. Now, that may seem like a phenomenal challenge, especially if you have been brought up in a context, in an environment, where the working assumption is that the church does delegate its primary responsibility to uphold and declare the truth of Jesus Christ to societies, organisations, associations, for the preaching and teaching and training and preaching and teaching. Spurgeon says that the missionaries should be sent out and supported by the church itself. And I shall never be satisfied till I see in this church an organisation so complete that it does not need a supplement, able to do every good work and fulfil every needful office of itself and by itself welcoming ever the cooperation of others, but never needing to depend upon a society for the accomplishment of any purpose to which the Lord God has been pleased to call it. Now I might add that sometimes churches need to cooperate in order to accomplish what they would like to do but I think the point remains that the church and not any society apart from the church has this scriptural responsibility and if we have come to the point where we are relying upon something or someone else to do the work that Christ has committed to his church then we are making a mistake. So the second point, note the wisdom of God in this matter and he uses some particular illustrations that the church of God in scripture is called a mother and so has no right to delegate to another that work. She is to bring forth her own children, she is to give them nourishment, she is to train them up and she is to send them out to do the master's work. Or again, the church is often compared to a city and in this case, again, she is to do her own re responsible labour. The liberties of a country are not safe with an army, but primarily with the citizens themselves. And if there were to be an invasion, the nation would awake to defend itself. Well, I hope that would still be true, um, but Spurgeon's saying that, that that's the principle. I know, he says, that as often as you bow your knee at the family altar then, you mention my name as you mention the name of your son and your daughter. Why? Because I belong to you. I'm part 
of the nation. I'm part of the city. I belong to the polis. I belong to the body of Jesus Christ. And so there's this connection. There's this communication. There's this commitment. There's this shared conviction that we have together. Why? Because we belong And when you belong to the family, when you belong to the city, you're not then part of some remote society, but you are one who is known and who is loved as much by you, says Spurgeon, as if I were indeed your brother according to the flesh. And that's why you pray for me. That's why you are with me. That's why you support me, because you understand what this church is and ought to be. So the church of God can naturally care for the state of her own ministers, her own missionaries. And a minister, a missionary, cannot hope to be greatly blessed till they are under the church and not under a society. Truly then, says Spurgeon, the word of God is safe in the hands of the church when the church lives near to God. And with Spurgeon, we're rushing on. The third point, remember, is that this topic should awaken reflection. And if you were one of those who was saying, well, it's all very well for a Spurgeon with uh, so many people and with so much money, and I'm afraid it just wouldn't work. And that, says Spurgeon, is the hitch in the whole matter. It would not work. Now, he's actually going to be a little ironic on this one, but just follow along. He, He makes mention of somebody who said, well, we've got machinery. And uh, the church can just keep going regardless of the people who are in it. Then, said I, depend upon it, yours is not that which God has ordained. In other words, the church is not a machine. The church is a living body. You cannot just turn the handle and crank something out. You need a healthy life in the church in order to accomplish its purposes. And this is what Spurgeon means that in itself, it shouldn't work. It seems to me, he says, that the most scriptural system of church government is that which requires the most prayer, the most faith and the most piety to keep it going. In other words, if you think it's just a machine and you can put a penny in the slot and churn out the product, then you don't understand the nature of the church in its relation to Jesus Christ. The church of God, he says, was never meant to be an automaton, a robot. If it were, the wheels would all act of themselves. The church was meant to be a living thing, a living person. And as the person cannot be supported if life is absent or if food is kept back or if breath is suspended, so it should be with the church. And someone else says, if you believe the church is to do all this work, then the churches aren't what they should be. Absolutely, says Spurgeon. Someone else says, well, our churches couldn't support a missionary. Some of them can hardly support their minister. Says Spurgeon, that's because they're not doing what they ought to be doing. They're not healthy. There's hardly a church anywhere, he says. But what if the Spirit of God were poured upon it might do ten times as much for Christ as it is now doing? This is his contention, that there may be some few churches walking in the right road, but they are few indeed. And the objection which you bring ought to be an objection against the state of the church and not against the plan itself. For it is possible for the churches to maintain missionaries and minister if they like to do it. Well, says someone else, a church must be very watchful to find out young men for the ministry. 
Absolutely, says Spurgeon. Oh, the minister's so busy, says someone. Just so, and it ought to be the case. What's the use of a lazy minister? He's no good either to the world or the church or to himself. He's a dishonour to the noblest profession that can be bestowed upon the sons of men. Let him have plenty to do. It'll keep him out of mischief and do him good. Too much to do may be an evil, but too little to do is a curse. Oh, but but the minister ought to be a holy man, says someone. You've got Spurgeon now and he's throwing out these excuses or these questions because if the young people who associate with him learn bad manners, what then? Spurgeon says, you're absolutely right. And he talks about the, the Vaudois, the, the Valdenses. Every minister training one young man. They take with them someone who's going to learn their ways. Watch the pastor, observe his practice, listen to his prayers, learn from his spirit. Walk the craggy mountains with him. Defy the enemy through the courage which he sees in his older brother. And so he learns lessons of wisdom, not to be learnt from books, lessons of practical pastoral training, which are not to be gathered from the best professors of the best colleges in the world, which is, it must be said, so often the shortcoming of seminary training. Give the church grace, says Spurgeon, and she does not want a new exchequer. Give her grace, and she does not need then to have new ministers. Give her more grace. She will not want the world's pitiful gold to endow her and make her rich. Give her grace, and you've given her all she wants. In that one word, you shall have successful ministers, laborious agencies, benevolence pouring out its floods, and piety consecrating all its activities for Christ. And you may say, pa, pietism. Well, if that's pietism, God grant more of it, that we might be churches where we are what we ought to be, organic reality, living bodies, working communities, true families, true cities, where the people of God serve together, where there is this fellow feeling and there is this earnest desire that each person should play their part and the word of God should then go forth because Christ is in our midst. And so, says Spurgeon, by way of suggestion, and with this he concludes, we must watch lest the church be adulterated by additions which are not an increase to her strength. Spurgeon says the issue is not just getting bigger. It's about being purer, being sweeter, being truer. It is about being a real church. And if there's antagonism, if there's division, if people are against one another, if the officers are divided from one another or the officers are divided from the church, then you're going to be in trouble. Spurgeon tells a little story about a farmer who uh, accidentally gave some counsel to, uh, to a church. I won't go into it for want of time. But he says every church must first be right at home before we can do anything for Christ. We must have peace within our borders. We must be filled with the finest wheat or else Christ will not send forth his word and make it to run very swiftly. So are you and I doing everything within our power in order to secure and advance the peace and prosperity of the church of Jesus Christ? Are we investing our strength and wisdom given from above by God, our energies, our opportunities, our graces and our gifts for the well-being of the church? 
Or are we undermining it or withdrawing from it or holding back from it or suspicious of it? This is when the church fails. And so what are we to do? And he points first of all at himself and then at the others. I must take heed to myself. I am to be the leader of this people, constantly ministering to them in the word of life. I must take care that my dedication of myself and all I have to the Lord be so perfectly complete that I would not have an objection to the church knowing what I do with all that I have. I must so live that they can see right through me that I desire to serve my master and serve him alone. Then one and all of you must say, what must I do? Let each man finding his own proper niche, each seaman on board the vessel finding which rope he can best handle or what part of the tackling he best understands, take his place. In other words, every man in his place, every man and woman with their hand to the labour, each one doing all that each one can in accordance with their graces and gifts, circumstances and opportunities for the service of Christ in his church. And let's be frank, that's why our congregations are not what we ought to be, because they don't answer that description. The church is an army and the battle cannot be fought by hirelings. So with you, step by step advancing, with firm, bold front maintaining every inch of the ground you take, and at last, rushing in one tremendous phalanx straightway to the thick of the fight, carry everything before you and win the crown for King Jesus. England expects every man to do his duty, yes, but the Church of God expects it more, and must and shall have it. Are you a Christian? Then stand in your place and do your appointed work, and serve with all you are and all you have. And as he concludes, Spurgeon says, I think some of you are asking the question, I don't belong to the church. What am I to do? First things first, join the church. Commit to the local congregation. Commit yourself to the the life of that particular body so that they are accountable to you and you to them, holding one another to the same standards, stirring one another up to love and good deeds. You say you love the Lord Christ, asks Spurgeon. Well, if you neglect one duty, that does not excuse you from another. You're living in a state of sin as a Christian man if you omit the duty of joining yourself with the people of God. When the church goes to fight, will you wait at home? No, say you, I'll follow you, I'll do my work, I'll go as one of the camp followers. Yes, but you're straggling and you're not under the discipline and you're exposed and you're endangered. No, says Spurgeon, Christian man, Christian woman, join yourself to the church. Stand under the visible banner of Jesus Christ. Enroll yourself formally and clearly with the Lord's hosts. And if you're not one of his, then stand back and do not dare to come. If you are, the standard is lifted and the trumpets are sounding. This then is is how we need to perceive the church of Jesus Christ and I believe this with all my heart. While I might offer some nuance at points to Spurgeon's definitions, while I know that there are other things that could and should be said, nevertheless I am persuaded that when the church of Jesus Christ prove themselves volunteers in the day of the power of their risen and reigning head, when we are striving together in peace and love with faith and hope, then and only then will we be what we ought to be 
and accomplish what we ought to accomplish. Spurgeon says, I can't do everything at once, but let me tell you, if you're not yet a Christian, to run down your old flag and to come to Jesus Christ. Bring down the black flag of rebellion, let the blood-red flag of Christ run up the mast and change your master. Spirit of God, he says, constrain them to change masters. May they no longer serve the black prince, Satan, but serve under his banner whose service is perfect freedom and whose reward is everlasting life. And perhaps our problem is that either we are not in the army of Christ or we haven't reckoned with the privilege and the responsibility that come with being his, knowing him and serving him willingly cheerfully and joyfully. May God help us to do that, not just for a few minutes or hours, but for the balance of our natural lives and into eternity. And God willing, we'll be back next time to look at another sermon from the heart of Spurgeon. Take care and God bless. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.